Welcome to The Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 75, Lies of the Magpie, bonus audio selections, chapters 22 and 23. Hi friends, welcome to the podcast. How is your summer going? Are you looking for that great summer read? Have you heard the news? My book, Lies of the Magpie, a memoir is available only on Amazon right now. It is available on Kindle, or you can purchase the lovely paperback edition. This is the story of my journey through motherhood, my struggle trying to heal from postpartum depression without taking medication, and all the things I learned in that process. I have received some lovely reviews this week, which I will share in a moment, and you are so lucky this summer you get free audio sample chapters from part two. I am in the thick of recording the audiobook this summer. That is what my recording time gets used for to record 50 chapters of audio. Last summer, 2019, I shared chapters from part one of Lies of the Magpie before it was published. And this summer, I'm sharing chapters from part two. No worries, there are no spoilers in these chapters. I do not reveal what happened on The Road to Tucson. You will have to get the book for yourself to find that out. But in part two, I do jump you ahead where baby Jack has joined the family and where things really start to unravel. So if you're just tuning in today and haven't listened to the other summer podcast episodes, you'll want to stop and hop back a couple of episodes, catch chapter 18, chapters 18 and 19, which start us out in part two of the book. And then there was another episode that had chapters 20 and 21, and today will be chapters 22 and 23. Okay, I want to share these wonderful reviews that I've received as people have finished reading the book. Gwen said, I just finished your book and I'm crying. So many emotions. I love every syllable of it. Peggy said, oh, I can't wait to finish. I'm loving it so far. Jaina said, I can't put it down. Carla said, I read it in a day. Very well written, a great resource for moms. And Tiffany said, I just finished your book a few minutes ago. Yay! Those last several chapters spoke straight to my heart and have given me some good inspiration to lean on. Thanks for sharing your story. It's going to speak to so many mothers. Okay, and can you hear some like elephant herd happening overhead? My family just came back in and I'm not even going to stop. I've got to keep recording this. This is summertime and I am a mother and I have seven people living in my home. Plus we have eight cats and a dog. So... I'm just going to keep plowing through. And if you hear the echoing, don't worry, I am okay. I'm not being charged by rabid rampaging wildebeests. It's just life at the Warners and we go with it. So where was I? I was saying thank you so much for everyone who has read Lies of the Magpie and taken the time to send me a message and especially taken the time to leave a review on Amazon or on Goodreads. Those reviews really help Amazon take notice and other readers to be able to find the book Lies of the Magpie as well. In today's chapters, we are just returning home to Arizona after a summer in Utah. Chapter 22 is titled The Longest Day Reprise, 
there is a chapter in part one titled The Longest Day. I did this on purpose, especially for you mamas, you understand when you have young children at home, the days feel like years and the years feel like days. Those days with young children go on and on and on and on as if you've run 20 marathons in the course of 24 hours. So this chapter, Mamas, is dedicated to you, followed by chapter 23, which is titled Circus. Also dedicated to you mamas and papas who understand what nighttime is like when you have a circus of children cycling through your bedroom all night long. So with that, I present for your listening enjoyment, Liza the Magpie, chapters 22 and 23. Chapter 22, The Longest Day, Reprise. Monday morning, Lia rides in the car with me when I drive Danny and Kate to their first day of school. She'd come over the night before and we'd talked so late that she ended up staying. Danny jumps out of the car and runs to his classroom before I can hug him. Have a great day in first grade, I shout, waving until he disappears inside the door. I hold Kate's hand and walk her to the kindergarten building. She wriggles free of my grip and runs ahead. Bye, Mom! Kate skips through the kindergarten door without looking back. Outside, I press my hands against the window, peering inside the classroom to see if she seems nervous. What if she doesn't know what to do? Other parents join me until a teacher's aide comes to the door and asks us to leave because we are distracting the students. Lia laughs, rousing me about being one of those sappy mothers who boo-hoos when her baby starts school. Opening my front door reveals an entirely different kitchen from the one I left. The contents of the toy cupboard are spread across the living room, kitchen, and family room. Tanner is awake. He has taken off his pajamas and sits top and center of the kitchen table. His overnight diaper leaves wet streaks as he scoots and spins up and down the table, spilling soggy cereal from his loosely held bowl. From the bedroom comes the sound of Jack's hungry morning cry. Jack is crying, I call to Aaron while washing sticky milk off Tanner's hands, face, and bare tummy. My dream of having Aaron home in the morning to help get the kids ready for school hadn't panned out today. When his alarm rang, he'd headed straight for the shower, gotten dressed, and shut himself in the office. What he's working on in there is a mystery. Maybe it's habit, waking up and going to an office. Tanner is tucked under my arm like a sack of flour, kicking and protesting against getting dressed. He's mastered taking off his pajamas at night, and he fights wearing clothing during the day. It's August in Arizona. Who can blame him? Can you hear Jack crying? I peek my head into the office to see Aaron working on the computer. His eyes never leave the screen. I heard you, Aaron calls back. There's nothing I can do for him when he's hungry. Maybe you could change diapers, I grumble to myself. In the bedroom, my knee pins Tanner to the floor while I wrestle to change his diaper. He is not trapped in a car seat today, and all he wants to do is run. Once he's dressed, I set him free to play. Jack's diaper is also soggy, the excess urine leaving an oval puddle on my side of the bed. The wet diaper is a good sign he's getting enough to eat. Traveling always dries my milk. We've been home two days, and my supply is finally getting stronger. Lia watches me give Jack a bath. I fill a washcloth with water and let the drops trickle a path up his poochy baby tummy and chest. 
until the drips tease the corner of Jack's mouth. He flicks out his little tongue. A misaimed drop lands square in his eyes. He winces, blinks, and sneezes. What are you going to do today? Laya asks. If it were up to me, I would freeze this moment scooping warm water over Jack's chunky legs. But Bob is coming for a business meeting, and piano lessons resume this afternoon. I need to ask Aaron to clean up the kitchen before Bob gets here. I hold tight to Jack's slippery body with one arm while unwrapping him in a towel with the other. Wait! Lia stops me. It's Aaron's kitchen as much as yours. It's not your job to ask him to help you clean his kitchen. You're both working the magazine now. He should know he needs to do household chores. We carry Jack's clothes and baby lotion past the office door, saying nothing, and settle on the family room couch to get Jack dressed and give him his morning feeding. I've just switched Jack to the other breast when Aaron's quick footsteps click across the tile. In one continual motion, he scans the disastrous state of the kitchen, from the cereal-filled milk puddle on the table to the half wall where Tanner is launching matchbox cars. His eyes land on me. I'm wearing cut-off sweats with my feet propped up on the footrest, singing a leisurely song to Jack. Bob's going to be here in 20 minutes. Aaron leaps into missile mode, clearing the table, loading the dishwasher, sweeping the floor. He polishes the table, scrubs dried milk drips off the chairs, and digs a tablecloth from the back of a cupboard. Tanner is banished to our garage-turned-playroom, chastised for making the mess. Aaron throws toys into the cupboard, every now and then shooting a glance my way. Wow, did you see the glare Aaron launched this way? Laya points out. You could slice glaciers with that torpedo. I've been awake for three hours and have fed and dressed four humans, but this is the first time Aaron has seen me today. Why am I the one feeling guilty while sitting on the couch nursing our eight-week-old son that Aaron is helping with my work and not vice versa? You'll have to finish later, little man. My finger in the corner of his mouth breaks the suction. I dash down the hall, cradling Jack, who looks confused by the abrupt end to his meal. Placing him in the middle of my bed, I scour the closet to find some non-maternity business attire to wear. The doorbell rings. Aaron greets Bob and invites him in. Running down the hall, my fingers swoop my hair into a hasty ponytail. Bob takes my extended hand and pulls me and Jack to his chest. He's the same age as my dad, and his warm hug engulfs me. Welcome back. How's baby doing? Bob examines Jack. He has grown over the summer. He has grown. The first two months of Jack's life are gone. The thought wrings my heart. At the kitchen table, Bob lays out copies of our April, May, and June issues. Aaron's cover designs look sharp, lined up in a row. For April and May, he chose stock images, but the June cover is Aaron's own nature photography. This magazine and Jack are the same age. I was pregnant with both at once, but rather than relishing a sense of accomplishment, I'm holding my breath waiting to hear Bob's prospectus regarding our startup months. He has the numbers. He knows if we ended profitable or in the hole. At last, he sets both hands on the table. Well, I think the first three issues turned out fine. He reaches into his accordion folder and hands us copies of June's review sheet with the breakdown of advertising income and business expenses. We didn't make money, but we didn't lose money either. 
Out of the 32 advertisers, 16 were new accounts I had landed, including the highest paying ad. I hadn't known if I would be able to do it, but I had sold enough advertising to cover the printing and mailing expenses for all three issues. Not bad for a pregnant lady cold contacting business owners during preschool hours. Those five months had been grueling. I wait for Aaron or Bob to mention the amazing work I'd done getting the magazine off the ground. Bob looks my way and I'm ready for his verbal pat on the back. Instead, he asks, How many of your existing customers are planning to advertise in this September issue? Um, I haven't contacted any of them yet. I fumble for the right words. We got back Saturday. I had to get the kids ready to start school. Jack sneezes loudly and we all turn to look. The noise disrupted his sleep and he cries to be consoled. Bob pauses the meeting while I lift Jack out of the swing and bounce him on my hip. Bob waits kindly, but he looks skeptical about the likelihood that I'll be able to manage a newborn and run this magazine. I am ready, Bob. I will not let you down. Bob takes a weighted breath before continuing. We need to increase our advertisers so we can go up to a 40-page book. We've printed 32 pages, which is okay, but it doesn't look as professional as 40 or 48 pages. Laya flashes past, ready to launch her workday. She looks sleek in a business pantsuit. Her hair is styled, but not too flashy. No post-pregnancy blotchiness on her flawless skin. Laya is the professional woman who should be at this meeting in my place. I situate Jack back in his swing, sit at the table, and open my notebook. Now that the kids are back in school, I'll be heading down to Goodyear to talk with everyone. I really think everyone will keep advertising. They've been happy so far. Well, sometimes that summer break gives people an excuse to back out. I hate to go so long without talking to my clients in person. Lowering my eyes, I turn away from Laya so that Aaron and Bob won't notice her and compare her against me. She hounded me every day over the summer to get Jack's birth announcement written and mailed to my advertising customers. It had been on my to-do list, and I'm ashamed I didn't get it done. There is an awkward silence. My voice is compensatory. I'm confident my advertisers will continue. I try to reassure Bob that I won't ruin his magazine or his credibility. At the front door, Bob rubs the back of his neck. Okay, well, we... uh... Only have two weeks until deadline. I wish we were further along. He looks conflicted about what he said. His marriage to Ludine is a second marriage for them both. But I know you needed to go see your family and let them meet Jack. I'm glad you had a good vacation. When talking about our summer, people keep using the word vacation. A four-week vacation? How lucky! It does sound gluttonous. But if I've just had a four-week vacation, why am I exhausted? My body wants to crawl back into bed and take that nap a niece offered me after Jack was born. Closing the door behind Bob, I want to sink down to the floor and cry. Aaron has gone back to the office. As far as he's concerned, the magazine is doing fine. Apparently, the pressure of acquiring eight new pages of advertising is only weighing on me. Not once during our meeting did Bob ask Aaron how many new accounts he intends to sell, nor did Aaron mention his plans to bring in new advertisers. Wasn't that our deal all along? I would get us started, but when Aaron resigned, he would take over the advertising sales. Of the two of us, he's the more experienced salesperson, 
and I have an infant to feed every three hours. Somehow, none of that came up in the conversation. Heading to the office, I run into Laya around the corner. She must know what I'm about to do because she says, Don't ask Aaron for help. It doesn't count if you have to ask for it. In the office, I slide my chair next to Aaron. Look how cool this is. He shows me his design for a new business logo. He doesn't seem at all stressed by our pending print deadline. I phrase my words carefully. Aaron, I want to get down to Goodyear today to contact our advertisers, but the meeting lasted two hours. Between feeding Jack, drive time, and getting back for piano, I'd only have 30 minutes down there. Aaron experiments with different color schemes for the logo. Tomorrow, the kids have dentist appointments that have been scheduled for six months, and it's Jack's two-month checkup. This reminds me that I need to schedule my six-week postpartum visit. I'm several weeks past due, and the episiotomy has not healed. Waiting until Wednesday will be too long. I can go this afternoon, Aaron offers. Are there certain people you want me to contact? Tanner comes in from the garage and launches his empty sippy cup at me. That means he wants more water. Dog, dog. He pats his mouth, saying he's hungry for a hot dog. Should I fix lunch for Tanner or prepare a contact list for Aaron? My priorities are so confused. I pause, hoping Aaron will volunteer to feed Tanner, but he turns back to his computer. Let me go through my notes and make a list, I tell Aaron. Then I turn to Tanner. Go find your fire truck and play a little longer. I put the sippy cup out of sight, hoping he'll forget then plop down in a chair and lift out the portable file box from beneath my desk. This file is where I keep ad samples, business cards, and pending sales. The file box is dusty. I pull the names of a few of my most reliable customers for Aaron. These are copies of the ad they ran last issue. Ask if they want to change their sales promotion or keep the same ad, and be sure to tell Randy that I said hello. After lunch, Aaron leaves. Tanner brings a book and cuddles up next to me on the couch while Jack nurses. My free arm pulls him close. The book is one of Tanner's favorites, Ten Apples Up on Top. He loves watching the characters stack more and more apples on their heads, trying to outdo each other. Apples, apples, up on top, all of this must stop, stop, stop. Tanner leans his head into my shoulder. Oh no, all our apples are going to drop. He knows what's going to happen when I turn the page. He pulls his fingers out of his mouth long enough to say, Quash! Tanner looks at the illustration of apples flying across the page. Uh-oh, he points. Crash! Uh-oh is right. What a big mess! I stroke Tanner's cheek, watching the flutter of his lashes as his eyes close. My eyes beg to close, too, but I need to dig out the music and lesson plans from the Tucson conference. Where did Aaron put it all? Plus, Carol is on the piano lineup today, and she cannot see my house like this. She once told me when her son was young, she vacuumed her house twice a day because young children spend so much time on the floor. My carpet has not been vacuumed for two months. It was fine for Bob, but I'm skeptical my blatant act of carpet neglect will escape Carol's scrutiny. Mondays are my longest teaching days, starting with my adult students. Linda arrives first, setting her cane inside the door and stepping in with a limp. How is the family adjusting to the new baby? She settles herself on the bench, opens her music bag, 
and hands me a container of state's quarters for the kids' collection. She spent her summer home in Pennsylvania and stocks us with pea-stamped quarters. Out west, we get the Denver Mint in circulation. Next is Rachel, a reporter for the Surprise Independent newspaper. Her news story about my first piano recital filled my teaching slots, and she became a student herself. Rachel's lessons are always filled with juicy tidbits of local gossip. We are twin sisters living mere opposite lives. She sits on the bench envisioning her life with a husband and children. I sit on my chair imagining my life as a single woman reporting the daily news. We bond over the stress of print deadlines. At 2.15, I see Carol's eyes scan my floor for fresh vacuum lines in the carpet. She presents me with a piece of pottery, courtesy of her husband's latest hobby. Thank you, is all I say, not sure whether to call it a candlestick or a goblet. At 2.40, the carpool delivers Danny and Kate, who burst through the front door carrying the energy of a school ground. The commotion is impossible to ignore. Carol stops playing and smiles while they run to me and empty the contents of their backpacks at my feet. Hi guys, how was your first day? I let them hug me, but for Carol's sake, I have to interrupt their simultaneous chatter. I'm teaching now, you can tell me all of this later. Go wash your hands and start your homework. Carol's eyebrows raise. Laya would tell me that she's wondering why my children aren't better trained. Mrs. O'Reilly stays to observe Mallory's lesson. May I use your bathroom, she requests. She wears horn-rimmed reading glasses on a chain around her neck, reminiscent of a 1960s school librarian. I point the way down the hall and hope that Danny's after-school aim was on target and that Kate remembered to flush her number two. Mallory is learning middle D position, with Mrs. O'Reilly knitting furiously in the background when Kate marches in. With all the authority of an almost six-year-old girl, she announces, Jack has poop everywhere and it's disgusting. Ethan takes Mallory's place on the bench while I power wash the diaper disaster. Chrissy arrives early on purpose so she can play with our set of rescue hero toys. Once my last student leaves, I lean against the door. Four hours of clapping in rhythm to hot cross buns and my head is a ticking metronome. Jack fell asleep to his swing's rocking motion after his diaper change. Let's get some food into your tummy, little man. Negotiation with Danny is required before I can claim ownership of the remote control. The art of diplomacy. Who says I'm not using my political science degree? Aaron walks in precisely three minutes later to see me with feet propped up watching the last five minutes of Oprah. For years, this is what my life has looked like to him. Reclining on a couch all day watching television. I can hardly wait for him to get a taste of what this staying home business is really about. Aaron unloads groceries. My budget antenna is on high alert as I catalog the items he sets on the counter. Every duplicate is money down the drain. How much did you spend? Aaron doesn't know how much he spent. He digs in a bag for the receipt. When I shop, I know my total within 50 cents before getting to the checkout line because I've been adding the sum as I go, removing non-essentials if the tally gets too high. Aaron doesn't even compare prices. Next time you're going, let me know and I'll send you with coupons. I wasn't planning to go, but I knew we needed food. I didn't know if you had anything planned for dinner. 
The fact that he assumes nothing is planned for dinner vexes me. Danny reads his homework to me. I rub at a scabby, dry spot of skin beneath my left earlobe until the raw skin oozes with clear liquid. Jack eats, Danny reads, and I feel guilty about Aaron cooking dinner. The whole situation is annoying. But Aaron was right. I didn't have anything planned for dinner. Once dinner is over and the kids are tucked in, I spread a blanket on the office floor and let Jack play on his tummy so I can talk to Aaron. How did the sales contacting go today? Were you able to talk to anyone? Yeah, Randy said to tell you hello. They aren't going to run an ad this month. The weight of a bowling ball drops into my stomach. You're kidding! Randy's full-color ad is my third highest revenue. Was his wife there with him? Uh-huh. You never ask about the ad when Verna is there. She micromanages the business funds. If Verna is there, you talk about her poodle and leave. Maybe I can catch Randy alone when I go out Wednesday and he'll change his mind. It terrifies me to ask about the rest of his afternoon. Phil and Amy at the framing shop are in the process of selling, so they aren't going to run. They said to contact the new owners in October. Did you tell them that if they run continuously, the new owners can keep the same rate instead of coming in at a higher rate? No. Did you offer to design a new ad introducing the new owners? Maybe the new owners would pay for that. It would be good publicity. No, they said they didn't want to run, so I didn't force the issue. He turns back to his screen. I turn to my desk. Did he do anything to save that ad? From January to April, I'd spent hours stopping in and chatting with Phil before he finally agreed to try an ad. When several customers brought in the coupon from our magazine, he was ecstatic, saying it was the most effective advertising he'd ever done. Did Aaron remind him of that? No, because Aaron doesn't know about Phil's coupons. Aaron doesn't know about Verna or her poodle. Phil and Amy were my most reliable advertisers. The first day out and two ads down already. Hunched over my keyboard, I lean my forehead in my hands and fret about how to recoup the damage. Aaron powers off his computer, says goodnight, and steps over Jack. He leaves me staring at a towering stack of mail, the heaviness of my to-do list threatening to crush me. Laya enters quietly. You'd never guess that she's been through a full day of work. The front pleat of her pantsuit still looks freshly ironed. Not a strand of her hair is out of place. There are leftover tacos in the kitchen, I tell her. My stomach growls. I could eat a seven-course horse, but there's so much to do. Laya chooses not to eat. Instead, she sits close and works with me, sifting through the mounds of papers. She sorts the grocery ads. Cream of chicken soup is on sale. On a scrap of paper, I scrawl a tentative meal plan, but a few months away from my own kitchen, and it's as if I'd forgotten how to cook. I can't create a single menu. Here's a coupon for 50 cents off tuna fish. Laya insists on cutting and keeping the coupon, though my family detests tuna. Moving to the mail, she rips open envelopes and directs my attention to the contents. Metropolitan Life encourages me to request a quote for life insurance. Del Webb Hospital provides instructions to obtain Jack's official birth certificate. Progressive asks if I'm paying too much for car insurance. I pause. Am I paying too much for car insurance? The letter gets stacked in a priority to-do pile. My desk is so messy it's almost polluted. A gray smog settles in the office, choking my lungs. 
Laya uncovers a sticky note reminding me in capital letters, Schedule six-week postpartum checkup. Jacksters flipping his head side to side, sucking on each fist, hoping one will produce milk. But Laya and I keep our noses pointed at task, hoping that if we keep digging, we'll eventually find my brain in the pile. Sometime later, Laya and I finally stop talking. Three Boston marathons have happened since I woke up this morning. Climbing into bed, my body sighs with the reprieve of being horizontal. I slide my feet back and forth between the comfort of the sheets. Over the summer, we'd watched that movie about the endurance horse race across the Arabian desert, where Viggo Mortensen and his horse eat locusts, their only sustenance to get them through the arduous journey. This has been the longest day. In a few hours, Jack will wake me, and tomorrow I get to repeat it all again. Chapter 23. Circus. Wednesday morning, Aaron pounds his alarm, sits partway up, and collapses against the headboard. I crack open one eye and check on Jack, who is sleeping between us. Aaron's hair is smashed flat on one side and poking out wildly on the other. He looks like he's come from battle. Who invited Barnum and Bailey's here last night? Throughout the night, Danny, Tanner, and Jack took turns rotating through our bedroom like three performing bears on unicycles. Danny complaining about Tanner kicking him. Tanner begging to sweep in my quib, please. And between those two, Jack's unignorable wail. From midnight to 5 a.m., Aaron and I volleyed turns as ringmasters of the greatest spectacle on earth. Now, at 5.30 a.m., the house is peacefully quiet. No signs of the rumble that took place in the night. Aaron punches his pillow. I cannot do any more nights like last night. He takes a four-minute shower and leaves for seminary. This year, he is the seminary supervisor, which means he doesn't have to teach every day, but he's there several days a week and substitutes often. My intent is to get up and shower, but I drift back to sleep. When Aaron closes the garage door, I sit up in panic. Can you get Danny and Kate to school this morning so I can get ready to leave for Goodyear? Aaron pulls off his tie. I have an appointment at 8.30 with the city planner. Why? Remember that business idea I told you about, the education program for migrant workers? I stopped by the city offices Monday and talked with the mayor for over an hour. She loves the idea. When did Aaron have time Monday to talk to the mayor for over an hour? when I thought he was contacting advertisers, when he could have been home managing the kids during piano lessons. You knew this morning would be my first chance to visit my customers. I told you on Monday. My voice grows louder and Jack wakes up crying. I lift up my pajama shirt and let him latch on. Did you make any contacts for the magazine yesterday while I was at the dentist with the kids? Yes. Aaron's tone is indignant. I handed out about 20 flyers. He huffs into the bathroom, slamming the door shut. I walk into Kate's room with Jack attached to my chest and nudge her with my foot. Wake up, time to get ready for school. Still feeding Jack, I spread butter on toasts and fill juice cups. When Aaron leaves for the mayor's office and Tanner is engaged in Barney's good manners, I sit in the office pounding my fist against my forehead, trying to shake loose a clue about which task is most important. My cursor flits over the computer screen, ultimately clicking the Photoshop icon. I've been trying to teach myself Photoshop so that I can stay home and do the design and layout work while caring for Jack, 
and Aaron can go out selling. Technology and I have an unstable relationship. Neither of us quite knows how to handle the other. The tools and symbols of Photoshop seem a foreign language to me. Following a tutorial, I open a picture of my oldest brother and practice cropping out and attaching his face to different bodies. This October, Caro will be the first of my siblings to turn 40 years old, and I'm working on a funny cover for his birthday card. When Laya comes in, she asks, what is that you're goofing around with? I'm learning design. I justify the time wasting. You've got to see these. My mouse clicks and the folder of photos I created for Carl's 40th birthday opens. Laya laughs at the images of Carl's head superimposed as Mr. Rogers, as captain of the Starship Enterprise, and as a dancing John Travolta. You're getting really good with Photoshop. Aaron returns and I click off the monitor so he can't see how I've spent my morning hours. He hands me the car keys and I give him a list of instructions. Jack went down for a nap at 10 o'clock. He should wake up to eat at noon. I pumped and there's a bottle in the fridge. Don't let Tanner fall asleep before one or he'll be awake during piano lessons. Aaron mumbles an okay. I don't ask how the meeting went with the city planner. I don't care. Today, my focus has to be recovering the lost ads. Phil is in the workroom of his frame store, assembling the matting on a bridal portrait. His clerk shows me to the back. That's gorgeous. I rave how the colors of the matting complement the photo's composition. He places the four sides of the frame to let me glimpse the final result. The frame is the perfect selection of elegance and simplicity. You do beautiful work. Phil looks pleased. We trade family stories. He asks about the baby. I wish him luck on his upcoming move. When all is said and done, he loves the idea of running an ad and splitting the cost with the new owners. Leaving Phil's shop, I race to catch Randy before he leaves for lunch. It's Wednesday and Verna will be gone to her pinnacle game. The building is a huge warehouse turned discount furniture store. My dress heels click across the concrete floor. Randy is behind his desk checking a price for a customer who is tapping her foot. I recognize her. Cynthia Moke? I hold out my hand. I'm Malia Warner. I bought your house on Memory Lane. Cynthia looks confused like she can't place my face. Dressed for business, I don't look the part of stay-at-home mother she met four years ago when I pushed Danny and Kate in a stroller up the sidewalk and knocked on the door asking about her house. I've never been able to tell you how much we love your house. You thought of so many great details. We love the air-conditioned, carpeted garage. I taught dance classes there, and my kids use it as a playroom. At last, it seems Cynthia makes the connection that I am the young mom who moved into her pristine house with a couple of sticky children. My intent was to thank her for the beautiful house, but she immediately makes apologies. I'm so sorry I didn't paint the walls before I left. I never meant to leave them plain white. And, oh my goodness, I'm such a mess today. I've been sewing and painting all morning. Randy keeps his finger holding the place in the catalog and listens while Cynthia tells me about a huge, empty home she's furnishing in Litchfield Park. My magazine mails to Litchfield Park. Have you seen it? I show her my June copy opened to Randy's ad on the inside front cover. This is yours. I get it in the mail. Randy's face perks up. Sometime later, I leave Heartland Furniture with Randy's signature renewing his full season contract. How could he not? My publication brought in Cynthia Moke, 
the TV-appearing upscale professional interior designer who a few minutes earlier probably wrote him a check for 10 times at the cost of his ad for the entire year. We didn't even mention his conversation with Aaron about discontinuing. Thank you, Cynthia. Aaron might consider spending my entire morning working two accounts to be an abhorrent waste of time. This magazine work is neither speedy nor efficient. Kind of like mothering. When I get home, Aaron is kneeling outside Danny and Tanner's bedroom with a screwdriver, reversing the door handle so the locks are on the outside. He has taken apart Jack's crib, moved it out of their room, and reassembled it in the corner of our master bedroom. For the next several nights after being tucked in, Tanner climbs out of bed and tries the door handle. We ignore his knocking. Eventually, Tanner gives up and climbs back into bed. A couple of mornings, we find that Tanner has slept on the floor by the door all night. When Danny complains about Tanner keeping him awake, I say, Danny, you don't have to sleep by Tanner. You can sleep out on the back porch. Danny chooses Tanner over the back porch. I have found the back porch to be a universal cure for myriad parenting dilemma. You can eat your peas or you can go sit on the back porch. You can practice the piano or you can clean the back porch. If the back porch isn't enough, I add the front porch for more effect. If I hear one more sound from this bedroom, one of you will be sleeping on the back porch and one of you will be sleeping on the front porch and it is raining. That night, Aaron and I pinky promised not to get up with Jack, but to let him cry himself back to sleep. At 2 a.m., we are wide awake listening to Jack's third bawling session of the night. My engorged breasts are virtually spraying milk like Yellowstone geysers in response to his cries. This is my fourth set of breast pads, but pumping will only train my body to continue producing milk at midnight. At last, I kick off the covers. I am going to feed him. Aaron protests. He's old enough to get through the night without eating. He's going to wake up every hour until morning. I need sleep. I try to sit on the love seat to nurse, but my head keeps bobbing and I'm afraid of dropping Jack. So I bring him into bed with me and let him stay there until morning. He's not going to sleep through the night if you keep bringing him to bed with us, Aaron says the next morning. Three and a half hours of sleep was not enough. I can hardly get my body into the shower. Today is morning appointments in Goodyear, followed by another afternoon of piano lessons. Bending to shave, a pain shoots down my leg. The episiotomy. Today I have to remember to call and schedule my postpartum checkup. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening to these sample selections from my memoir, Lies of the Magpie. You don't have to wait until next week to hear what happens next. You can go straight to Amazon and purchase your very own copy and find out the end of the story right away. And if you have a few minutes and want to do something that really helps me out getting my author career launched, head on over to Amazon or Goodreads or both and leave a review. And to make sure you never miss any exciting Lies of the Magpie happenings, go to maliawarner.com and sign up to receive all current book news and special offers. Thanks so much, my friends. I wish you a great last full week of June, a happy summer, and I will meet you back here next time with another great episode of The Power Podcast. Bye-bye.